0: R.P.N. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Episode 23, Writer's Memo from Fred Freiberger, May 2, 1968. This episode of The Trek Files is sponsored by the official Star Trek Starships XL Editions, large format ships officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and get the USS Voyager for 20% off and with free shipping. For details, visit st-starshipsxl.com slash thetrekfiles.
1: Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal
2: files
0: of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek... Larry Nemechek
2: Hey, welcome back Star Trek fans Background seekers And yes, our Star Trek Files Out there with spelled with an F uh, Welcome back to a, another episode of the Trek Files and today we've got a real fun one Teamed up with a real fun guest Returning to us uh, This is, uh, boy, prime Original series turf At a pivotal time in the original series uh, History, we're going to look at What later became called script status reports. But it's a memo that Fred Freiberger, who very famously was filling in for Gene Roddenberry for the third season, the hotly contested and renewed and hard-fought fan-won renewal of Star Trek. But as it turned out, without Gene Roddenberry, who was being hands-off over losing a dispute about the the airtime for the show that, that season. And so to stand his ground and get on with other projects, he backed off Uh, ...show running the thing, stayed as an executive producer... ...with Fred Freiberger hired in his place, and as a generation or two or three of fandom knows... ...the third season was not quite (laughs) what the first two seasons had been... ...and whether that was all laid at Freiberger's door, or treatment by the network... ...or cutting budgets, or what have you, that's all out there. And today we have, apparently, a very early, if not the first, memo... ...about the early scripts for third season... Written by Fred to, apparently, to Gene. Here's a sample.
0: Before preparation date, I expect that we will have at least four scripts in Mimeo, with at least an additional three going in the following week. In addition to this, if network doesn't hold me up, I hope to have an additional five and a first draft before we start shooting. I did not want to go ahead with more than two additional teleplays until I know exactly how many spots you want me to hold open for you. I don't feel as if I'm in any kind of a bind, so I'm not pressuring you for an answer. It's just that it would give me a nice, comfortable feeling if I had a couple of Gene Roddenberry scripts in grey covers. Regards, Fred Freiberger.
1: Star Trek fans, you asked for bigger ships, and now you've got bigger ships. The official Star Trek Starships XL editions from Eagle Moss are twice as large as the standard models. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, each iconic ship is die-cast and hand-painted. And each comes with an in-depth magazine featuring production artwork, highlights of the ship's history, design, and a breakdown of the technology on board, along with crew and weapons. Start your collection today with the 10-inch XL Edition USS Voyager for only $59.95 with free shipping. New models ship every other month for the same low price with free shipping and you may cancel your subscription at any time. For details and to order, visit st-starshipsxl.com slash files Go big with the official Star Trek Starships XL editions at st-starshipsxl.com slash thetrekpiles.
2: Yes. May 2nd, 1968. The third season is officially underway. We've got several uh, scripts in the can, and there's nothing worse than having a a production held up waiting on a script to be finalized. So, Freddie, if nothing else, Fred Freiberger made the trains run on time, so to speak, no matter what you thought of the ride or your destination. So, here we've got a uh, a list of obvious and some that are not so obvious titles of scripts. If you're following along with us, if you've gotten your document from uh, the Trek Files at Facebook.com, and here to talk about them with me, once again, is our favorite uh, Oscar winning, multiple Emmy winning veteran of Next Generation Onward and fan in the trenches of the 60s revival and the 70s comeback, Mr. Doug Drexler. Hey, it's me again. It is you. Who else would that be? <laughs> Good to be back. Is it? This is boy. This is right out of the heart here, isn't it? The pivotal turn into third season. Oh yeah. No one knew. People were excited about the revival.
3: Well, we felt like we almost were. We thought we weren't going to get a third season, and now we had one, and we were all thrilled, and we felt responsible for ha- for there being a third season.
2: But it's a long way from Desi Lou to your TV set, and in May 1968, no one could know what was eventually going to unfurl, and gee, was it worth it <laughs> most people would say yes it was but well
3: i mean I, I there are third season episodes that i do like right um but you could tell that uh some uh, secret sauce was left off the burger <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean and i don't know if it's because you had somebody at the tiller even if he wasn't writing all the scripts who was a science fiction fan uh, i think that does make a big difference um, and maybe that's the reason. Uh, I don't know. It, it, yep. it, it was a different, absolutely different time because there was no Internet. Now you could go and and, and, and kind of know what's going on in the background uh, on the Internet. You could, uh, uh, you could almost take a show's pulse the, the way it works <laughs> these days. But back then, whatever politics or whatever was going on between the point where NBC said we're going to do a third season and the point where they actually geared up for it, you don't know. We don't right. know what's right. happening.
2: And, you know, Paramount had just bought Desilu, or they bought halfway through the midway, two-thirds of the way through the second season. So it was now Desilu was out the door. It was Paramount's studio production, NBC network. But the thing that rereading this, he talks about Arthur Singer, even the way the shows were structured then. Today you watch a show, there's 27 writers in the, in the stated credits, you know, whether they're above the line or below the line at the end. And, and Next Generation, even in the, the Berman era, had five, six, seven, eight people on staff at a time. Back in the 60s, now we talk about a showrunner, but you had the executive producer. There was like the writer-producer. Maybe it was the creator. Maybe it wasn't. And then you had the producer-producer, the line producer, like Bob Justman, even though we never got proper credit for it. And, and you know, Gene, it was Gene and John D.F. Blacker. Gene and Gene Kuhn. You know, Gene and and uh, uh, Lucas, Meredith Lu- John Meredith Lucas. Um, Here we've got Fred Freiberger, and he mentions Arthur Singer, who was his number. But they didn't have five, six guys. They were leaning on freelancers so much. Well, the
3: whole production overall. I mean, when I consider what the art department looked like back in the 60s compared to the way it was when we were doing Deep Space Nine and, you know, where we had a couple of illustrators and we had four scenic artists. And, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, back on the original series, it was like probably Matt, his brother John. You know, and maybe a, 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 someone to draw up blueprints. That was probably about it, you yeah. know. As a matter of fact, I remember that we were uh, at the book signing for the Art of Star Trek, and Matt was there. And he was flipping through the book and came across some of the illustrations that were done for Deep Space Nine and burst into laughter because they were so carefully drawn and rendered. It, it, that The whole idea of spending yeah. that much time on a, on something it was absurd to Matt. He couldn't believe it yeah. because you know I got not to go off the beaten path. But have been which his I'm time, prone so that's do, why. Yeah, but <clears throat> but um, when oh. Matt was had, took on all the design work himself, he couldn't. It was important. You look at the sketches. Some of the sketches and some of them are pretty crude. But I do believe that there's a positive side to those crude sketches. Yes that the really polished ones and really, you know, illustratorly, that that, that you lose. And that is a design has to really, really, really be strong to make it through drawn crudely. You can take a poor design and make it look spectacular if you have an artist who really has a lot of style and pizzazz to the way that they illustrate. So I don't know whether it's actually a plus to have really highly illustrated Drawings. Sometimes it, it it works out better. I mean, look at the Enterprise, the design for the Enterprise, which is still being used as this inspiration for everything. You look at Matt's drawings. They're really, really rough, yeah.
2: really, really. And cool. if you look at uh, Bill Tice's cost, I mean, they didn't. go oh, in yeah. For big time, they didn't have time. They didn't have no. the staff, and they didn't have the have the time. So this is this is um, like I said later on. I know I know from Next Gen onward. These were called script status reports, and the script coordinator <laughs> would, do, whether it was Lolita or Eric Stillwell or Maggie Allen or, or or Juan Fernandez across the years, would keep a compile the stat. It was to let everybody know what stat, like we've just had this pitch come in, we've turned the pitch down, we've taken so and so off this script and got so and so working on a on a script now, or we were going from a story. You know, it was where things are because they're we've talked about that ticking clock, and, and these scripts are done so close sometimes to production. But and here, here, 26
3: Fre- of them. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes.
2: Yeah. These little wimpy 10, 12, 13 episode guys. Yeah. Today. With
3: a staff of like seven <laughs> to 10 writers, you know,
2: but this is, you know, I wonder if Fred is actually typing. No, he certainly got a secretary to, to do this, but it's coming from Fred. Not, there's no script coordinator typing
3: up this list. Uh, you know, reading this is, uh, is revealing just like all these memos you guys dig up. Um, as a kid, when the show was on the air, uh, wh- whereas, I, you know, Gene kind of cultivated the idea that NBC was the evil empire, mm-hmm. I never heard anybody say anything bad about Fred Freiberger. Bob Justman, who never says anything bad about anybody anyway, he's such yep. a gentleman. Uh, I, I never heard anything like that from Gene. But uh, so in fandom, when the mm-hmm. the show started coming in and they were missing that secret element, Fred would die in town, and so... Heaped the blame on him. I mean, I remember thinking it had to be his fault. He was the new guy, you know. Uh, the, the difference. What's changed? Oh, that guy. Yeah. yeah. So he he became a villain in the eyes of many Star Trek fans. A, you know, uh, uh, which is un, unfortunate. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's really. I've never met Fred. I'd never mm-hmm. met him. I don't know what he's and like. I'm he's, sure
2: he's since passed.
3: I'm sure he's a. Yeah. You know, I'm sure he was a, a nice guy. Reading the memo though is really interesting because. You could see there's a, a little bit of, and you had mentioned before, a little bit of uh, trying to appeal to Gene's vanity in the letter, which I think is really well. Gene's technically his boss, technically. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, saying we really we need the fans expect a certain thing from a Gene Roddenberry <laughs> production. You know, whoa, <laughs> uh, he's not dumb, I'll tell you that. But uh. <laughs> and, and and this is
2: ve- this is May, so this is very early, it's the earliest scripts for the season. They haven't. Nothing's been shot yet. Spock's brain was the first thing to shoot, and it hasn't. I'm I'm sorry. um, um, uh, Spectre the gun, which here is still being called the last gunfight, was the first thing to shoot. It didn't air first, but uh, it hasn't shot yet. So it's very early. So this is, you know, he hasn't had time to go into whatever mood he gets into by the time the season's done. He's everything is still all hopeful, shiny, bright, square one. For the season for him okay. now for the rest of them they're all for a lot of the staff bob i'm sure and a lot of the uh, writer you know they're all wondering what's going to become of us now they're cutting our budgets even more they put us on a worse time slot gene's not hands-on you know but oh for, and,
3: and, and you've got bob justman there who feels like he should be the producer
2: yes yes and, and he should have been <clears throat> yes
3: I, when i think that that bob didn't get that that really hurts my feelings <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, Bob was too much of a gentleman and a scholar and a working professional to let it go there, but he, he had taken pains over there to show that he was not just a producer-producer, yeah. that he could handle story. Oh, yeah. And he had, he had uncredited pitches that wound up becoming stories that he got burned on, too, but uh, Tomorrow's Yesterday from one of them. But uh, but yes, he's still there, and uh, for the good of the service and for the good of Gene, he's still. Pl- and everybody he's always a with. good soldier. Yeah.
3: Um, the last time we got together, we looked at that memo that Gene Roddenberry had written to Jerry Eisenberg about mm-hmm. fandom, and I had mentioned that what's really revealing about it is the rewriting, which is still, uh, you know, that's the thing that you had back then. You'd have a typewriter, and then you go in with the pencil, and so you've got a record of all these revisions on a computer. You know. Right. So when I read that, I found it fascinating because you could see where Gene was massaging words and things to not step too far over the line and stuff. I would love to see if there was one for this memo from Freiberger. Did he sweat over this memo to make sure it said things just right? Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Or did it just go out exactly as he typed it out? I'd love to see that.
2: Well, again, we have this from Gene's files, so we don't have <laughs> – if, if Freddie Freiberger kept all his papers from, you know, whatever show, name it, that he walked into toward the end of that, that run of that show to keep it going, uh, we don't know. And we don't even know if – we haven't found a reply from Gene or if Gene even read – Well, we put know
3: it, these. it was an emotional rough time exactly. between Gene and NBC. They had promised him like a Tuesday night 7.30 time slot, which he thought was perfect for Star Trek. Uh and, and, and it was part of the reason why he got the... the you know, he 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 was going to come back. He thought he was going to get a good... Or, or so, he says. When they moved it to Friday nights at 10, right? Mm-hmm. Was Friday nights at 10. I mean, now that doesn't matter because people can TiVo or record or stream it. Right. Back then, Friday night, your prime audience is on a date probably, you know. Uh, so he really felt like they were stacking the deck against him by putting it on on Friday night. And I don't blame him either. Um, so, how, yeah.
2: So, so we don't know right off. We haven't found it yet. If maybe if there is, or if have replied to these. Well, I was, that's
3: what I guess I was getting to. I wouldn't be surprised if he looked at it and said,
2: if he <laughs> just threw
3: it over, it. <laughs> yeah, he Eisenberg that, you know, he just said, I, yeah, I, I'm going out for, Majel and I are going to go get dinner now.
2: But, yeah. but, but then at the same time, there's still things we can glean from this. For one thing, Lee Cronin is suddenly this prolific writer, well, Lee Cronin is gene Kuhn, who 's still writing well, the you'
3: show. pointed out how unusual it would be that be, that they refer to him as Lee Cronin all through the memo when he they know he's jean so it's like what's happened what's going on well, there well
2: unless this is official paperwork that's submitted to the guild well i you guess know, and they're all playing the game I of no so. one knows lee croone because jean right. jean uh, is on contract to okay, uh, i think it's the name that. of the game i could be oh, wrong oh is that right but so he you know and he's supposed to be exclusive that i hear to that the show.
3: music in my head he's moonlighting
2: sorry no 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 <laughs> We need that 1969 experience, <laughs> but but you know, but people could play in the pre-internet, pre-DNA, carbon-14, whatever. You know, you could moonlight over here with a pen name, and uh, you had nothing to do with being blacklisted. That could it's be
3: it. That and could they're all it. just
2: being very cautious because yeah. this is paperwork that would go to the guild for you know, if they ever had an arbitration. Yeah, you're right. Um, they would do this. So, and the children shall lead. We all. We all know this. Um, apparently, they cut uh, Edward, the original writer, off. And Arthur Singer, who, again, in the small scope of things, was the other staff writer um, or the main staff writer for all the freelancers, uh, was going to do a polish. They already were
3: there. Uh, Spock's brain. <laughs> Spock's brain. That, see, now, that's a notorious classic show. Uh, uh, in, in, in the same – I'm not saying it's as bad as uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, but it has the same kind of appeal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like a party thing where you watch it for laughs. Well, yeah. It's the
2: show you love to hate.
3: But I'll tell you, when I first watched it and did it air second – It was the – see, it was going to be – It was the lead It was another amok time. You see that? We did
2: so well you with amok time that? in a Spock show. Let's do it. I Spock's. found that
3: over the years, my brain goes directly to – Yesterday, uh, um, enterprise incident Mm -hmm. as the first episode because Spock's brain was like a whack in the head with a (laughs) two by four for me. I was like, Oh no, oh my god, it you know, that term they jumped the shark, which didn't exist at the time. Well,
2: they they jumped the android, it was terrifying
3: for me to see that episode. Although, I told you guys that years later, I took it and I put a laugh track on it, and it's the greatest. It's one of the greatest shows ever with a laugh track. But it has, still, it has that notorious appeal where people remember it because it was just so unbelievable that Star Trek would be. I, I, I'm really curious to what Gene Kuhn really had in mind with that and what his original vision I'd was because he's heard, a wonderful
2: writer. I read somewhere that he meant for that to be comedic and Fred Freiberger decided that Star Trek didn't do comedy and had them do it straight.
3: Oh, boy.
2: Uh, and totally changed the tone of it um look here then there's somewhere here on this list I mean Spock's brain we know about Spock's brain I think it's interesting though to hear that that Fred back before anyone knows <laughs> how anything will turn out and the legacy he's saying uh, apparently it was his suggestion that Spock's brain be used uh by the antagonists against the people which he thought was a great idea and they expected to get his revisions in you know Gene Coon, the writing machine get him in and he's gonna turn around and talk about Wink of an Eye um uh, Getting on with those things, but here's what: in essence, nothing uh, credited here with uh, J. A. Burns wound up being Judy Burns, which wound up being the Tholian Web, which was awesome, awesome show. Wow! The original title here, the Answerer, wound up being um, the Empath. So we we see some of the uh, you know, and some of them came later in the season. So you you get the idea of some of the stories needed more work. And and uh, Shore Leave Two, <laughs> very bluntly says, have cut off Theodore Sturgeon. I'd love to know. Huge huge sci-fi writer, but if you read The Saga of Shoreleave Leave the first season, it was totally worthless as far as getting a producible TV script together.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Big uh, guy,
2: big wacky sci-fi idea guy, wonderful, but then
3: Have you ever read any feedback from Ted Sturgeon about the, how Shoreleave B- what he f-
2: how he felt? Yeah, I think there's some of his replies and memos back. He w- I, you know, I think he took he liked the fact that it, he didn't like his, the way he was treated though in the process. But I don't think he got it that they needed to t- to shoot a show and he was giving them great ideas, but it could not be produced.
3: Well, so. I know that uh, as time went by, uh, Gene didn't really want to deal with mm-hmm. professional science fiction writers, people who wrote novels and stories, and where he was so he- hept to do it. In the first year of the original series I think by the time he got around to next generation he was like um, well
2: when he had to nurse made so many of them through a script writing process yeah. and it was he or Jean or the other gene oh and
3: else. also if you're not if you don't one of the things you have to learn if you're going to work in a business is uh, you can't you can't wear your heart on your sleeve and you got to have a thick skin and you can't be married to any of your ideas. Otherwise, that that that's the way the road to madness, the road to hell is paved with that, you know. Yeah. Uh, And um, I I find usually uh, people who are used to having their own way. I mean, you write a science fiction novel and you might have an editor at Pocket Books or something like that that has some suggestions. But mostly it's your universe and you're in charge. No one's going to tell Harlan Ellison how to write. Or develop Mm -hmm. a character in one of his novels. You're not going to do it. But then you come to a universe that is completely, you know, uh, cut and paste and chopped their heads off. And, (laughs) you know, it's more than you want to deal with. And you could be kind of a diva and be cranky. So I could see where I'm glad that uh, Gene was able to get some science fiction writers in there because it really did impact the show, even if those writers felt like they got shortchanged. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, anyway, this is just a a prime. A prime example from a very pivotal time that was infamous, actually, the turn the, the from Fred Freiberg taking over the show. And he's not, uh, you know, my, my big question coming out of this between lauding Gene and his upbeat assessment of all these scripts and getting the process going and keeping the wheels, you know, keeping the train running on time, uh, I'd really like to see how his memos, if we could ever find one, what he was thinking, writing, and feeling by the middle of the season, yeah, <laughs> and by the end of the season, oh yeah. And if he was so laudable toward Gene or, or cared anymore, if it just turned into a rote, you know, here's where things are. Let's just get the damn show done. Uh,
3: well, I mean, there's plenty of times like I'm sure, <laughs> even in the thir- even in the first season, which most people consider to be the, the show at its peak, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. not just between the departments, you know, wardrobe and the art department, and you know, dealing with Bob Justman who says that we're going over budget here, you know, um, the network is giving you grief too. Oh, yeah. And and Gene did a lot of rewriting in the first year. I mean, can you imagine that you're up for two days rewriting a script and they get it and you get a note back that just seems like it's a flip off the cuff saying, take out something you worked hard on and considered for days. They just w- blithely yeah. will, you know tell you it's no damn good <laughs> yeah
2: well one thing i know for sure is that having you on the show doug has been pretty damn good so <laughs> the clock on the wall over there is telling us we have to wrap up but uh but this has been another fun time here i can't wait to we have definitely going to get you back for some more great shows. great and uh, get because up you we know will, we will dive further into the future
3: okay that's my favorite thing to talk about <laughs>
2: The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com/slash The Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek, that's me, and Portal 47 at larrynimacheck.com.